This morning, we are kicking off a new sermon series, and if you know me, you know that sometimes I get a little bit excited about these things. Uh, This series in particular, as somebody who has been excited about this year of the story, as somebody who uh, thinks of himself as a storyteller and likes sharing in that with folks, I'm so excited to start the series called uh, Short Stories with Jesus, in which we look at the parables and and try to perhaps um, uh, encounter some that are familiar anew, uh, probably find some new ones, and Uh, find some comfort and some challenge in the midst of all of it. I'm really grateful to be starting this journey. I think it's going to be a a lot of fun. Parables are are short stories that are used uh, in order to illustrate a point or to help us understand uh, something that may otherwise be a little bit complicated. Uh, They relate to us, but they should also shock us a little bit if we're paying attention. We should be a little bit of, of uh, a little bit surprised. And, and part of the power uh, of teaching in stories is that uh, what Jesus says uh, all those years ago is able to speak to different people in different times, in different contexts, in different societies, with different socioeconomic backgrounds and realities. And these same stories reach all of these different people in different ways. And so uh, part of what we'll do together is to try to understand what they might mean for us. And it's not always going to be the same thing for each one of us who is gathered together. Some days, like today, um, I'll in fact sort of share uh, uh, maybe several different ways that we might read a a story and how it is that we might find find ourselves in the midst of it. Uh, but I want to say just, just one thing as we get started, and we'll continue to talk about why parables and, and what Jesus uh, did with them and, and why they're significant and profound and meaningful today. But one thing that I think is just a base level important thing for us to keep in mind is that I, I don't believe that you can get a parable right. Like there isn't a correct understanding. I do think there are incorrect understandings, um, but I don't think there is a right answer. This isn't... Um, Uh, uh, some key in which we're supposed to find out what Jesus meant. Uh, I I think there are several right answers, and there is a versatility um, in Jesus's words and in his teaching, and that's part of why he uses parables. So today, uh, we're going to read from Matthew 20, um, and this is a a story of what happens in an agrarian society, perhaps uh, around harvest time. And I want to read... I usually read from the New Revised Standard Version. I want to read um, Amy Jill Levine's uh, transliteration of that. And what that means is um, uh, it's, it's a little bit more word-for-word translation than idea-for-idea. Idea. Um, but this is a familiar story. I think you'll be able to follow along. And, and some of the language that she's picked reflects more of, of the words Jesus was using as they were written in their original language, and I think it's, it's helpful for us. So I'd invite you to hear these words if you're following along in your Bible. Uh, we'll begin in Matthew 20, verse 1. For is the kingdom of heavens to a man, a householder, who went out in the morning to hire workers for his vineyard? And agreeing with the workers for the denarius of the day, he sent them into his vineyard. And going, around, out, going out around the third hour, he saw others standing in the marketplace without work. And to those he said, you go, even you, into the vineyard, and whatever is just, I will give you. And they went. And again, going out around the sixth hour and also the ninth hour, he did likewise. And around the eleventh hour, going out, he found others standing, and he says to them, why are you, why here are you standing all the day without work? They say to him, because no one has hired us. He says to them, you go, even you, into the vineyard. When evening came, says the Lord of the vineyard to his steward, call the workers and give to them their wage or reward, beginning with the last ones to the first ones. And coming those around the 11th hour, they received each a denarius. 
and coming the first, they thought that they would receive they thought more that they would receive. And they received each a denarius, even they. And receiving, they were grumbling against the householder. They were saying, These last ones, one hour of work they did, and equal to us you have equal to us have you made them to the ones having borne the burden of the day and the burning heat. And answering to them, he said, friend, not do harm I to you. It's a little confusing sometimes. Um, (laughs) Did not for a denarius you agree with me? Take what is yours and go. And I wish to this one, to this last one, to give even to you. Or is it not permitted to me to do what I wish with what is mine? Or is your eye evil because I am good? So let's find ourselves first uh, in Matthew's gospel. So we're in the 20th chapter, and here's what's happened uh, just in the previous chapter. In 19, uh, Jesus has sort of moved from teaching directly, giving uh, sort of more directive traditional styles of teaching, uh, um, orders about how to live into moving more into narrative teaching. And he'll do that a little bit more along the way. And what he's along the way to is Jerusalem. So Jesus, uh, Matthew will tell us, is just in this part, uh, beginning to turn towards Jerusalem, which will lead him uh, to a cross and to an empty tomb. And and he has awareness of that, and he's trying to make those following him aware of that, uh, but they seem to not be getting it. And so that's sort of where we're at in the story, uh, what's going on. And Matthew would also suggest that this parable um, as, as Matthew tells it, it is not sort of necessarily given to a large crowd, but maybe just for his followers, his closest followers, his disciples. And so um, he, he's using this to sort of explain what the kingdom of God is about as he's on this journey to Jerusalem. Um, and, and so that's sort of where Matthew is in the midst of the narrative when this story comes along. So as we hear this story, I wonder um, who it is uh, among those characters or groups of characters that you identify with most. This will always be a, a question that we have to answer with, wrestle with as we, as we come to parables. Who is it uh, that, that we, we sort of see ourselves as in the story? Uh, today, I want to navigate our time together by considering that we could find ourselves um, as any of the three major characters or groups of characters represented in the story, and that uh, if we saw ourselves in any of those three places, this story would mean something radically different. And so I want to begin with what is perhaps the most traditional reading of this story is that we, the audience, uh, those who bother to show up to church, those who read the scriptures, those who, who generally think of ourselves as, as doing what's right and living right in the world, that we often hire, uh, imagine ourselves as the people who are f- hired first thing in the morning. In this uh, traditional allegorical reading, God is the householder, and uh, the story about agrarian economics isn't primarily about agrarian economics, but instead uh, is about salvation. And um, we, as the workers who show up in the morning, have a particular view of that. So, we think of that oftentimes because we've done the right things. We've toiled and we've struggled, we've sweated and we've sacrificed. Um, we... we um, We work and we want ourselves to be respected and regarded by others. Um, Perhaps we consider ourselves as this sort of person in day-to-day life, just as citizens. We we try to do the right things. We try to uh, do what's appropriate to be above reproach, to to live life as we're sort of expected to. But but maybe it also has to do with our faith life. We we prioritize our faith. We give to the church. We show up to worship. We say prayers. And we do those sorts of things that we're supposed to do. We know what it is to work hard and to dedicate ourselves to something uh, that is beyond ourselves or perhaps not normative. 
We also know what it's like to watch somebody else sort of shoot up through the ranks who doesn't do all the right things. I was just talking to a friend this week, um, and and she said in her industry, there are uh, particular boy kings, was the word that she used, um, that that seem to get opportunity after opportunity and promotion after promotion for, for no real reason. Uh, it doesn't appear that they're doing the right things. It doesn't appear that they're uh, uh, going through the, the, the proper steps, and they just seem to get ahead. And, and we don't like it when that happens, do we? It makes us uncomfortable. Because we were the ones who were at the city center before 6 a.m., uh, ready to be picked up and go to work. We agree for what is fair and what is right and what is just, and then we acted admirably, and, and we, we worked diligently through the afternoon sun, And so the end of the day comes and and we're ready to collect our pay knowing that in less than 12 hours we'll be back out at city center uh, ready to start the whole process over. And so the end of the day has come. We're ready to, to collect our compensation. And then we get a little bit surprised when payout comes. If those last chaps to show up got a full wage, then surely we will get more. But our pay comes and we don't get more and that gets us a little bit chapped. So if we see ourselves as the first ones hired, there are two things that I, can be, I think can be instructive for us. First of all, the complaint of those who have been working all day long um, when compared to those who have only worked an hour is that uh, the ones who have worked an hour have been made equal to us. That's the translation, and that's uh, basically how Amy Levine says it. That's how the NRSV and the NIV translate it. Notice that the words that Jesus puts in their mouth is not that they got paid the same as I did. It's that they have been made equal to me. And isn't that the, the heart of the matter? Isn't that really what we, what we don't like? I mean, we, we get frustrated when the financial bit doesn't seem to match up the way that we think it ought to be, but usually uh, we can work through that. But when we say that you've made them equal, that becomes about status, and that becomes about power. That becomes about our standing and our perception. That becomes about judgment that we make. When all is scarce and all things are a competition, we must categorize winners and losers and levels of superiority. And the complaint of those who worked all day is that you've made them equal to us. And so if we find ourselves uh, identifying with the the first hired workers, perhaps there's something for us uh, to ponder in our hearts. If we see ourselves uh, in that particular place, maybe we want to ask uh, where it is that our true status is derived from. Uh, maybe we, we need to reflect on, on what it means uh, for us to have status as children of God and that to be a primary and a shared status. A second instructive point, the master of the house remains gracious. So they, they lodged their complaint, those hired in the morning. And the, the direct translation of the given response is, your eye evil because I am good. Now, in her book, uh, which I'll use a lot through this series, Amy Jill Levine talks about this phrase, an evil eye. In essence, uh, in antiquity, what that meant is uh, to be struck by jealousy or, or, or really overcome by uh, jealousy. And so there is this, these words from the, the householder that says, like, have you become, have you, have you, basically, have you lost your good sense? Uh, we might say uh, it's similar to when somebody says, have you lost your mind or your temper? Have you uh, become overwhelmed with envy? Have you lost any objectivity about a situation? And, and here's what's interesting about that. 
I don't read that from the householder, the, 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 the person who goes and hires all the people. I don't read that as an indictment, but rather as an invitation. And I think that's how Jesus means it. I think what Jesus is, is saying in these words is he's inviting those who were hired first um, into, to, to remember who they are, to remember where their status comes from, to remember uh, what grace is, to remember what is right and just, and to live accordingly. In essence, it's holding up a mirror and say, remember who you are. The householder says that with quite a bit of grace. So again, we've been, we've been uh, taught in this first understanding, which again, I think is the most common one, uh, to believe that this is an allegory for salvation and to trust that all those who receive it, receive it alike. And, and we can grumble about deathbed conversions and we can wonder about professing playboys, but, but at the end, we should just accept it and deal with it and remember who we are by God's good grace. And this is one possible reading and it's a good reading, it's an instructive reading, but it's not the only reading. So what if instead we identified as those who were hired last? I wanna just imagine that for a minute. Most of us won't do that naturally. Because more often than not, it seems like life pretty much goes our way. It doesn't mean we don't have hiccups. It doesn't mean we don't have disappointments. But, but by and large, in spite of our challenges, we can be objective enough to say that, that for the most part, God and life have been good to me. But what about for those people who may not have the same feeling, either because of the season they're in or because how life has worked out in general? What about for those who feel like life has passed them by a bit? Maybe that's you now. Maybe that was you in a different season. Or maybe there's somebody who comes to mind. Or perhaps you just think about those we traditionally characterize as being down on their luck, like, like the unhoused, like uh, people who are addicted, uh, like people who simply can't seem to get their life together, like uh, people who have um, mental or physical disabilities that, that make it harder to, to navigate society. They're the ones who are always picked last if they're picked at all. The scripture suggests that there's nothing wrong with those who are hired in the 11th hour. So it's five o'clock, the day is almost over, and the householder goes into the city square. They seem to be capable enough, and there's nothing in the original language that, that suggests that the householder has any judgment towards him. In fact, the question may be quite the opposite. He comes in and he says, uh, why are you still here? You seem perfectly able and perfectly capable. Are you unwilling? What's happened? Why are you still here at this moment? What's gone wrong that you've not been hired? The master of the house seems gracious throughout Jesus' story, and so there's no reason to impute ill intent on him in his question of why are you still here? Why have you been here all day? There's also no reason given in the scripture text to impute ill upon those who are hired at the end of the day. They respond with a factual statement, we're still here because nobody's hired us. They wanted work. Perhaps, in fact, they had already worked in the morning and they had come back and they were waiting for more work to come around to see if they could find uh, additional work for the end of the day. Perhaps it's just a matter of, of the householder not knowing how many workers he would need because uh, he kept coming back to get more and more. Perhaps he is just generous and gracious and wants to hire people. Perhaps there is weather rolling in and it's harvest season and we've got to glean the fields the best that we can. We don't know what happens. But what we know is that at the 11th hour, they're called off the fence and into the game. And so I just wonder if perhaps you know what it's like to be acknowledged after you feel like you've been ignored. Maybe you know what it's like in the midst of frustration and disappointment for just 
just one person to genuinely listen and at least make an effort to understand where it is that you're coming from. Maybe you know what it's like to feel like you've been continually unnoticed, but to receive just a a small passing affirmation that reminds you that what you're doing and how you're doing it is worthwhile. Maybe you know what it's like for someone uh, to come to you when you're down on your luck and offer just a small helping hand that can tide you over till a new season. Why are you sitting here, the householder asks, because no one has hired us. J. Ellsworth Collis talks about this parable, and he says there's an experience deep in his memory uh, that that helps him understand the workers. And then he goes on, these last ones hired, and he goes on to recount the story of finding out that his dad had lost his job. This was right before the beginning of the Great Depression to make things worse. And and he talks about the story of coming home and seeing his dad and knowing immediately something was wrong because his dad was never at home when he came home from school. Then he talks about the profoundly challenging reality that comes around job loss. And perhaps you know somebody who's experienced that. Part of that is because we uh, tie up our identity into our jobs, uh, but we also tie up our identity just simply in being able to produce for ourselves and for others. And so when that changes, when it feels like the rug gets pulled out from under us, there uh, there are few experiences in life that can be as disorienting as that. We could talk more about that, but I want to read what he says after that, um, because I think this is also important. He says, there is something far more poignant, though, eternally so. The response, because no one has hired us, represents to me a waiting world. It's a picture of the pathos of those millions of people who go through their lives with an almost unceasing emptiness while they wait for someone to hire them. I'm not talking about jobs or the world labor market, though that in and of itself is a serious enough problem. I speak rather of what we might call having a purpose in living. There are those in the world, the ceaseless multitude, who want desperately to know that life amounts to something, that there is some purpose in their living, a reason to inhabit this planet. Hardly anything is more challenging as feeling unwanted. There is is the ultimate tragedy of the soul, wandering in the loneliness of city streets or living obscurely in small-town isolation, or it is the kind of mental illness which causes a person to withdraw from society, usually because that person has become convinced that society has already withdrawn from him or her. If it is tragic to feel that no person wants you, think how profoundly tragic it is then to feel that life itself doesn't want you. I think that's so interesting, and maybe you can relate to that personally or through the experience of a loved one that you know. And if we saw ourselves then as the last people who were waiting and finally got noticed and got seen and got hired, and then we're, we're told that we have as much value, we have equity to those who were first hired, then how profoundly good does this parable sound? If we see ourselves through that lens and we see that Jesus says, no, no, these people have the same value, how incredibly powerful is this? That not only are you wanted, but that you're needed, that you very much have value, in fact, are equal to all those who have come before you, all those people who seem like they have their life together, all those people who still have their job, all those people who project that they're in control. God says, you still have as much value, equal value to them. So how inexpressible is this incredible good news for those who are wondering and waiting and watching and feeling like life is passing them by? 
There's also an invitation here to reconsider what the work itself is and how we approach it. Perhaps the financial remuneration, though not insignificant, isn't the primary purpose. Perhaps there is reward in having the work, in having purpose, in having a sense of call and vocation and being wantedness. Perhaps instead of grumbling about the work and grumbling about the pay, we would learn to appreciate in any season of life where we feel like we're rooted, like we're needed, like we're connected to God's grace and love, like our labors have some meaning. Maybe we would learn to appreciate that more deeply if we saw ourselves in those hired in the 11th hour. One commentator considers this an excellent illustration of, of Calvin's discussion about the second part of Christian freedom. Those who serve God simply to avoid punishment or obtain payment will do so in the manner of a servant, whereas those who see the task of working with God as a gift, they will labor without coercion in the manner of an offspring who love and loves and wishes to please their parent and will be eternally dedicated to the family work. And in so doing, the task itself is the reward beyond measure. So might it be good news for the downtrodden and the left behind to simply know that they have value beyond worth? And that they may yet find an invitation. They may yet perceive the invitation into life's deepest meaning. So I'd like to conclude then by looking at this parable in a third way. Perhaps we could see ourselves as the landowner or the householder or the master of the house. And, and here's the deal. If I'm being honest, that's probably for me the, the biggest connection, the easiest connection. Because I own a house, or as my wife reminds me, um, a bank owns a house and they let me live in it for a small monthly fee. But you get the point. I have keys. I have a place that I call my own. Uh, we have a house. And generally speaking, I'm a person of, re a person of reasonable means. I, I don't have to go every morning to city center to work for minimum wage, hoping that that's enough to be a living wage. I don't have to stand in the commons each day and wonder if work will come. I don't have to wonder if I can pay for my car, for my food, or my child's school. I don't have to consider, I, I don't consider myself living a lavish lifestyle, but if I compare myself to the way that most of the world lives, I've got it pretty good. And the bottom line is that if I'm being honest, I'm more similar to the owner of the house than I am to the laborers who are in the field. I'm, I'm more similar to the master of the household than the disciples to whom Jesus is speaking, most of whom were tradesmen themselves. And so if I saw myself as the ha householder, what might Jesus' instructions be for me? Could it be that this story about agrarian economics might actually have something to do with economics? Might it be that there actually is an economic directive in his words? By the way, if you're feeling yourself getting a bit uncomfortable at this point, it's only because you're paying attention and there are implications. What might his words mean for those of us who have means? Might it suggest that we ought to pay everyone a living wage? Might it suggest that those who are able and those who are disabled and, and those who we've deemed to produce the most value and those who we've deemed to produce the least value, that all of them ought to be able to feed their families? It's hard to get at exactly how much a denarius is, but the general consensus among scholars is that it's enough for a family to get by, if only barely, in first century Palestine. So might we consider that the owner of the house didn't need to return to the city square to, to hire more help? but rather that he chose to? Amy Jill Levine suggests that uh, perhaps it's a call for those with wealth to hire whomever they can at a living wage so that those people might have dignity. 
Perhaps it's an illustration of the truth that a community is doing better when everybody is doing better. Said differently, perhaps the point is not those that have get more, but rather those who have not get enough. Jesus declares that his ministry is about good news for the poor, but very often his teaching is about responsibility for the rich. So this day, as we wrap up and and get ready for a time of reflection, where is it that you are in this story? With which character do you most identify? How is this story speaking to you? And how will you respond to this short story with Jesus? I'm so grateful to be starting this journey with you. Let's take a few moments for reflection.